Hey everyone, happy Sunday. How's it going today? Woo, it's another toasty one. Everything was going nice for about a week and now it's toasty. Anyway, I want to welcome everybody tonight for our Sunday uh, Sunday evening reading of The Legend of Lizzie Borden. Legend and Haunting is The Legend and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. Make some adjustments here with my stuff. Air conditioning on the background. And uh, give everybody a few minutes to get into the chat room or get into listening. Try and get some good volume going here without blowing out my ear, my, my poor eardrums. And uh, talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to have a great show. My computer's just powering up too, so we're just waiting. Tomorrow we're going to have a great, going to have a great show. Cynthia Larson is going to be with us, and we're going to learn about making life better for ourselves, which is kind of cool, you know. And uh, can't wait for that show. Okay, all right. But anyway, went to see Elvis yesterday. Yes, I finally got. I'm not going to say who took me, but I was able to go see Elvis finally. And being a huge Elvis fan, I've seen every movie about Elvis's life. Read all the books, right? And this was a great movie. Austin Butler did a great job. I was very, very impressed with it. And... Uh, you know, he may not look all that much like Elvis, but he was able to make you think he was Elvis. I mean, that's the important thing. Now, there were a couple things in there that I caught that uh, Mr. Lerman had the, told the stretcher on, you know, where, where he had stretched the truth. But other than that, it was a really good movie. And um, if Austin Butler doesn't get nominated, it's, it's a shame, you know, because that movie should be nominated for something. And uh, it, it was great. I would love to see it when it, gets, when it goes like to uh, to Paramount TV or whoever did it. I would love to see the movie again because it was really, really a good movie. You know, really good. Um, but uh, that was my yesterday. And today, of course, I did yard work. I uh, got up at 7, which is very rare for me. Did some yard, did a bunch of yard work outside. And came in around two o'clock because it got too too blinking hot outside. You know you know it's hot when you're working under a gazebo, and you come in and your face is beet red. So you know it's hot outside. So that was the sign. Came in, had some leftover Chinese, and here we are. Bit ready to do our read for today. And uh, the story's interesting. Lizzie has to update everybody because we're in part nine. Lizzie has done the deed. The cops, are, the police are now, I think they're pretty much done investigating. The majority of the police have left the house. And uh, Lizzie's just trying to figure out, you know, what she's going to do with, this is assuming she did it, okay? And we're not saying she did it. I don't think the book really, the book kind of leans towards saying that she did it, that she did the deed. But, uh, you know, Lizzie's trying to figure out what to do with, uh, with the dress, how she's going to handle that, okay? Because she's trying to, you know, she thought she was outsmarting the police, but now she's starting to question that. You know, she thought that she had it all figured out as far as there's no water. As far as there's no water in him. As far as the police were concerned, she uh, thought she pretty much had that beat, you know, and had the most smarted but found. And they've been asking her these questions that kind of, that make her nervous as far as all that goes. You know, where she wasn't as smart as she thought she was, where the police are concerned. So that's where we're at in this book, and 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 they're gonna, you know, at some point they're gonna charge her. Maybe maybe it'll be today. Who knows? I mean, we you know. I mean, I read today. Who knows? But at some point she's gonna get charged with, with the crimes, and I think her sister's gonna be coming back too. Emma, let me move this a little bit this way. There we go. Make an adjustment. 
when I work on here and type and stuff, it tends to shift over because I have it at an angle anyway. Cause I'm in a, I'm I'm kind of at a weird angle in here because I have a big light like back up there. There's a real bright light, silly silly light, and if I don't have this angle just right, you get the light from the ceiling light. So I have to keep it angled a certain way. But anyway, I'm glad to be here. It feels good to start another week. We've got a great we a great guest coming on. Everybody's confirmed for the week, so I'm going to start getting those out to announce so everybody knows who's going to be on this coming week, and uh, rolling right along, and we're up to, what is it, 500 downloads for the month, I think, over five, more than 500 downloads, so we're going to hit, uh, we're going to hit close to 1,000 downloads as far as the podcast goes this month, I'm hoping to hit more, you know, I, the idea with this is to see an increase in the number of downloads, to see an increase in the number of views, and to see an increase, you know, all the way across, and in the, in the number of of subscribers and all that stuff, you know, to see that increase, even if it's one, you know, to me, even if it's a number 10 extra downloads, that's still an increase, you know, we're st- the word's still getting out about the show. So, you know, if I see an increase every month, it's, it's cool. It's been doing that. And, and since, um, I think it was June, no, not June, <laughs> May, May, yeah, so I'm going back, backwards counting my months. Since May, we've seen, I've seen a huge jump. April, May. April is really when we saw a really, really big jump, and then it settled back down, and then it leveled off, and now we're seeing uh, another jump come in now. So I'm really excited about it. Really stoked. What have we got here? Hang on a second. Let me read this real quick. Gotcha. I got your message. It's cool. I'll talk to my uh, producers about it. Thank you. Anyway, so yeah, so we saw a nice jump and hopefully that keeps happening. So if you guys can hear me okay, that's great. And let's see, we got one more minute and we'll get rolling here with Lizzie Borden and uh, get our read in for the the weekend on my antiquated tablet. See, I got an old tablet, 8-inch. Samsung Note Edge here, so I can read. Hopefully, my eyes are are doing well enough to read today. But uh, my name. Oh, by the way, I never said who I was, did I? I'm such a bad person, bad host, bad slap, bad host. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour reading this book. I also own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento. We're 45 strong up and down the state of California, which means if you have a pro- if you think you have a paranormal problem, you can um, get a hold of me and we can reach you in almost every county. And if we can't, we will find a way to get to you, you know, because we have someone in almost every county. So we can come out and help you. That's our job. We also are not going to tell you you have a ghost right away. We are going to go through everything meticulously, step by step, to make sure we're providing a, a service to you. All right, it's not just about the ghosties, okay? All right, so let me get this geared up here. Let me get going here. And like I said, that's kind of where we left off with Lizzie. And she's done the deed, and the police are finishing up their investigation of the house. And she just love that little droppy sound. Where are we? Put me in. Put me in. Maybe I didn't do that. Hang on. Maybe I pushed too many buttons. Let's see. Too many buttons. I push. I love the push buttons. So you guys gotta bear with me. Ah, there we are. There you are. 
I have these like super big so I can read the dang book. Because I'm a blonde bat. Okay, that wasn't cool. Come on. Really? You're going to do that today? Give me a minute. Yeah, sometimes it does this. I have an old tablet. That's why I keep asking somebody if they want to give me a new tablet. I'm game, right? Okay. All right, so uh, I forget what chapter we're in. I just know that the overall topic of this, in the middle of this particular chapter, is looking for a murderer. And it just went small on me, so let's, I need to increase. There we go. Lizzie Borden remained on her red lounge in her bedroom as the afternoon sun made its way slowly towards the Ta Ta Taunton River. Her friends had come and gone throughout the day, always making sure someone sat with her. She asked each time they entered her room what was happening outside her door. No one had been in to question her for some time, and she hoped it meant the police were now out looking for the murderer. Tactfully, they answered her questions as best they could. They could tell by the questions put to them downstairs that the police found Lizzie's statements and demeanor disturbing. Her friends didn't need to shield her from the, from the knowledge that Abby's body had been removed from the guest room next door. Lizzie had heard, their voice, heard the voices of the men carrying Mrs. Borden past her door as they tried to navigate the tight curve in the stairway, grunting beneath their burden. She is gone now, Lizzie thought with relief, as the voices descended the staircase. She will be gone from this house, my house, and Emma and I will be free. Minutes later, as her friends brought her tea and comfort, she noticed the strain about them. Something was happening downstairs that was upsetting, something they wanted frantically to keep from her. Although the voices from the sitting room had risen in muffled waves through her, through her bedroom floor throughout the day, Lizzie had tried to distance herself from the image of her father laying there dead, separated from her only by carpet, wood stress, ceiling plaster, and space. She did not realize they had laid out on a they had laid him out on a perforated board and cut him open. As Lizzie had hoped, however, a massive search had been ongoing throughout the day for the perpetrator of the Borden murders spreading from her yard to the surrounding areas like a stain. Officer Francis Frank Wixon began the search earlier that day, leading out of the Borden yard. Soon after, the city hall bell struck 12. He was in the backyard searching through the tall grass. The movement of, the man, of a man's hat on the other side of the fence to the southeast captured his attention. He climbed onto the pile of lumber at the Borden's backyard and stepped along the fence. He jumped down in the crow's yard where a masonry business was run. The yard was filled with odds and ends, lumber and weeds. A barn sat near the fence, a pile of lumber west of it. Twenty to twenty-five feet from the fences separating crow's yard from the Kelly house, south of the Borden's yard, stood a man sawing lumber near the pile. His back was to the Borden property. Officer Wixon approached him and asked him a question. The man did not understand and replied in French. Two other men were there. One, John Denny, a stonecutter, stayed back closer to 3rd Street that Crow's Yards abutted. Wixon asked them if they had seen anyone that morning or heard anything from the Borden house. They said they had not, and seemed surprised to hear about the murders. Patrick McGowan worked for Crow's Masonry. He was in the stone yard that day working. At one point, he walked over to the fence where the Borden and, and Shanglan properties met at the northwest corner of Crow's Yard. He stood out at the pile of lumber on Crow's side and reached up to a branch of pears hanging over from Shanglin's orchard on the other side of the fence. The Frenchman sawing wood 
Joseph de, Joseph de Rosier told him in broken English that the pears were not ripe yet, but the ones hanging over the fence to the west were. Those were the Borden's pears. Patrick got up on the fence where he could reach them better and plucked off three pears. Mrs. Mary A. Chase, who resided over Wade's store next to the Kelly house, saw McGowan up on the fence at 10.45, the morning of the murders, filling his pockets with pears. He saw her and jumped down near the barn on Crow's side. She reported it when the police questioned the inhabitants of the neighborhood, neighboring houses. It was Patrick McGowan's luck to be caught pilfering Paris from the yard of the house where two brutal murders were taking place, not far from the time he was there. Due to this, he lied, stating he left Crow's yard by 10 that morning. Dr. Shanknell's pear orchard sat behind the board and back fence to the east. To the north of the orchard were the doctor's home and residence. On the morning of the murders, he and his wife were going to the Rocky Point Clambake Amusement Park. Officers Harrington and Doherty went to the house to question the people there. They spoke to Dr. Shagnon's assistant, John Norman, who told them he was at Bowenville during the forenoon, driving the doctor and his family to the train station to catch a train to Pawtucket, Rhode Island, at 10.45. The assistant had called Dr. Colette's and asked the doctor's son to go and care for Dr. Shingdon's house until he returned home that day. Someone needed to be there to answer the phone in case patients called or in the event they dropped by. The son was busy at the drugstore and could not go, so Dr. Collette's daughter, Lucy, was sent to Shagnon's to await callers. The 18-year-old girl found herself locked out at Dr. Shagnon's, so she sat down on the piazza in the, front, in the yard from 10.50 a.m. to 11.45 when Mr. Norman returned. She could see the Borden's back fence and swore she saw and heard no one during that time. She later testified she did talk to two patients who dropped by, which would have taken her focus away for a few minutes. One gentleman came in 11 and waited for 10 minutes until finally giving her a pill bottle to be filled and left. The other man did not stay after hearing the doctor was out. Officers Harrington and Doherty went to the south of Crow's Yard to Mrs. Crapos. She and her servant girl were home all day and heard no unusual noise, nor did they see anyone go through their yard. The Fall River Ice Company was south of Mrs. Crapo. In the yard were several men constantly employed there. They reported the officers that no one came their way. Mrs. Kelly's girl, Mary Julian, who had been talking to Bridget that morning before the two set about washing the exterior windows, was interviewed. She stated she and Bridget saw no one in, in and around the yard. Dr. Bowen's wife, Phoebe, told the officer she had been sitting at her front window, which is directly opposite the Borden yard, and yet in, and in full view of the front and side doors waiting and watching for the coming of her daughter, Florence. She was at the window until 10.55 a.m. The daughter was away and was expected on the forenoon train. At this point, Mrs. Bowen arose and said, Well, she will not come down. Mrs. Bowen, parenthesis, Mrs. Bowen did not mention seeing Andrew Borden come home to the front door at 10.40 to 10.45 that morning. The officers knocked on every door and questioned each person loitering along 2nd Street. The stories repeated, saw no one suspicious and heard no noise out of the ordinary. Men were sent to check depots and roadways. They rounded up a few suspicious characters, one of which was a poor Portuguese who made the mistake of emptying his savings account that day of a measly $60 in change. He was brought to the, to the jail for questioning and let go. The police interviewing potential witnesses was focused on a particular time, after 10.30, when Andrew was headed home. 
At 10.30, Joseph Chatterton was just giving up on waiting for Abby to come out the front door and was headed, heading back to Emery's on, West, on, on Waybosses Street. If the officers had asked questions concerning an earlier segment of time that morning, they may have garnered more information about the clandestine meeting that resulted in the elderly couple's murders. Each witness's statement they jotted down had timestamps of 10.30 or later, moments after Lizzie Borden came around the side of the house from the backyard, after hurling a hatchet over the east fence. Some did report seeing Bridget washing windows between 10 and 10.30. Parentheses. If Lizzie had gone into the backyard only 15 minutes later that morning at 10.45 and stood on the woodpile at the southeast corner of the yard, she would have come face to face with Patrick McGowan reaching for the pear branch where she, where she stood. Lucy Collett, sitting only 40 feet away on the piazza of Dr. Shagman's house, would have seen an arm flinging a hatchet in a crow's yard. Bridget would have finished the windows at that time as well and witnessed Lizzie returning to the house. The planets had a line for Lizzie Borden that day. End parentheses. In a scene reminiscent of Mayberry, the good people of Fall River had gone about their business that morning. Frederick A. Pickering, number 8 Forest Street, was on 2nd Street and saw nothing. Mark Chase was around the express company's stable, opposite the Borden house all forenoon. He wandered back and forth to Wade's store next to the Kelly house several times between 10.30 and 11.15, and saw nothing suspicious. Wade's store seemed to be the place to be for those in no particular hurry on that hot morning. Leander A. Wilson had been loitering there when Mary Wyatt, the woman living over Dr. Borden's, Bowen's, told him and several others with an earshot about the crime. Macy C. McCumber was standing in front of Wade's before walking down to Lewis L. Hall stable when Mrs. Churchill ran down street, ran down. Sarah Gray was in the store at 103 2nd Street. Not busy, saw nothing. Harry Pierce of number 25 3rd Street was standing around Hall stable for some time before Mrs. Churchill hurried over. Not one person noticed anything out of character, with the exception of Dr. Handy and Mrs. Manley, who reported a strange pale man standing near the Borden house between 9.45 and 10.30 that morning. The neighboring homes and businesses were not the only places receiving the officer's full attention. The Borden Yard, Privy, Old Well, Grape Arbor, Barn, and Lumber Yard have been gone over several times. The well had been covered over years before and was filled with debris. The vault beneath the privy was, admittedly, not probed to its dregs, but a cursory view of it seemed to satisfy the officials nothing had been dropped into, into the goop. The lumber pile had been investigated at least half a dozen times that day by various officers. At one point, the boards were removed, a foot down from the top of the squared off planks, nothing. Alfred Johnson, the farmhand from Swansea, had meticulously stacked the wood planks against the east fence in the Borden's yard into a square formation, placing the boards atop each other, leaving a well of space in the center. Other piles lined the fence as well. At the top and bottom of, each of the east fence, flanking Shagnon's pear orchard, was barbed wire. Interestingly, no other neighbor in the area was reported to have gone to such lengths to fortify their property. Was it the barn break-ins that caused Andrew to add an additional obstacle to entry to his yard? Was it the nearness of the mill tenements only a few streets over or the rash of fires in the area set by an arson hand? Perhaps it was to keep people from pilfering his pears. His paranoia is obvious in his house of locks and the rules given to the latching of the three doors that provided entry from the outside. There was also that barbed wire fence.
Chapter 22, Thursday, August 4th, 1892, evening. Emma arrives home. Emma Borden rode through the town of Fall River in the rear of a rented hack. The train had arrived at the, at the Bowenville station on time, and she was now headed home. Her small, val her small valises rested beside her on the seat. She worried a loose piece of yarn from the carpet bag pressed against her hip as the buggy passed the family buildings of South Main Street. Thoughts of Dr. Bowen's telegram ran through her mind, telling her that her father was ill and she was needed at home. Not Abby, her father. What did it mean? As they approached Pleasant Street, she noticed clusters of people hurrying toward Borden Street. It must be another fire, her tired mind thought, as it seemed there was always one starting somewhere in the city. She tipped her head and cast her eyes upward through the buggy window. No smoke appeared above the treetops and roofline. The driver of the heck hesitated at Bourne Street. He had intended to turn left onto the road and then right on the second street. But the street was completely choked off by people who were standing like, like a human wall, refusing to budge. They poured out of shops and seemed to seep up from the pavement, making travel along South Main Street almost impossible. He snapped the reins and the horse pressed forward up Main Street, foregoing a turn onto Borden as people reluctantly gave way to the traffic. By the time the hack turned left onto Spring Street, Emma's heart began to race. She could see that the wave of motion was towards Second Street. Shouts of murder came into the buggy as, inv as invasively as a horde of wasps. She felt dizzy and terribly, terribly frightened. Several hours earlier that day, her father had walked along this very street on his way home for the new meal and to find out what had happened to his wife, who had not shown for a very important appointment. This rush of strangers had eradicated his last footprints. The driver came to a stop at the corner of Spring and Second. Crowds blocked the way. Up ahead, he could see policemen frantically trying to keep them to the sidewalks, but there was no room. There had to be close to a thousand people jockeying for a view of the green, of the green house four houses down on the right. Emma leaned from the buggy and stared aghast. This could be her street. Nothing looked familiar. This distorted... It looked distorted and foreign. These bodies of strangers that blocked her normal view of the neighborhood had turned it into something else. It would never appear the same. She shrunk into the carriage and pulled her bag under her lap, her fingers gripping its handle until the flesh shone white. A sudden surge of movement, the creaking of wheels, and the buggy pulled forward. She saw a sea of faces peering into the carriage at her as, she ha as the hack slowly progressed towards the house. It's Miss Emma, she heard someone shout. It sounded ugly and invasive to her ears. It was to be only the beginning of the peeling back of her coveted privacy. The crowd moved aside and allowed the buggy to pull up before the front gate of 92 Second Street. Climbing down from his seat, the driver opened Emma's door and took her two carpet bags. She clutched the smaller valise in her left hand while accepting his with her right. A strange hush had settled over the people immediately around the house while the steady thrum of voices could still be heard outside the sudden bubble of stillness. She looked up to see a policeman standing at her front door. His face looked both stoic and sad at the instant their eyes met. As she moved toward the gate, the hack driver was holding life for her. She felt gentle pressures upon her back and sleeves. People were touching her as she passed. This was the only member of the family to which they had been given access. In some morbid fascination, they reached out to feel her, a souvenir of the morbidity going on inside those protected walls. The hack driver delivered her bags to the front doorstep 
and doffing his cap, turned back to the buggy. People were leaning into the window of the back seat where Miss Emma had sat, perhaps hoping for something she had left behind. The driver climbed up onto a seat and flicked the reins. In deference to the carriage that had borne Emma home, they made way for him to pass the short distance to Borden Street. In his head, he was already rehearsing the story he would tell at his supper table that night. He had driven Emma Borden to the murder house. He had carried her bags. The tolling of five bells excuse me, rang out over the housetops, each tone seemingly more deep and, and, some, and sonorous as the one preceding it. Five bells, five people who had lived within the walls of that austere building. Two of those people were now dead, their bodies lying on the other side of the front door. Emma stepped into the front hallway and stopped. Mrs. Holmes had been told she had arrived and was waiting for her at the bottom of the front stairs. The doors of the parlor and sitting room were closed, turning the entry into a small box. But the stair is only the way out. She took a step forward. She took a step toward, I'm sorry, she took a step toward the sitting room door. But Mrs. Holmes had her on the arm and stopped her. She was led instead to the stairway, where her younger sister Lizzie waited above. James Winwood stood inside the sitting room and watched as Dr. Dolan and his team of associates <clears throat> finished with the partial autopsy of Andrew Borden. Abby Borden's body lay in the dining room atop a coroner's board where several other doctors were finishing their examination of her and stitching up the Y incision that had been made from her collarbone to her pubis. Both hers and Andrew's stomachs were in sealed jars sitting on the kitchen table. Melted wax had been used to form the protective seal on each jar and each jar had been labeled. Whether Bridget had melted the wax for those seals or stood by to see her employer's stomach sitting in jars like macabre preserves is unknown. Attorney Knowlton questioned Undertaker Winwood during the preliminary hearing as to his duties concerning the bodies of the two deceased Bordens. Knowlton. Did you have something to do with the bodies of Andrew J. Borden and Mrs. Borden? Winwood. I had charge of them, yes. Knowlton. Were you the one who removed the effects from the body? Winwood, I took the things from Andrew J. Borden's clothes. As if it was already noted earlier, as it was already noted earlier, several people had taken Mrs. Borden, Mr. Borden's effects from his clothes and looked at them, including Assistant Sheriff Wixon, Dr. Bowen, Dr. Dolan. Evidently, they were returned to their original place before the autopsies began. End of parentheses. Knowlton, did you give whatever you took to Dr. Dolan? Winwood, I did. There was $78 in bills in the pocketbook. Knowlton. What was the pocketbook in? Winwood. In the inside pocket inside the coat. Nolan. Not inside the vest? What else in the shape of valuables? Winwood. In that pocket there was some minor papers which we did not examine into. Just opened them and saw there was no money in there or notes. That is all we examined for. Knowlton. There was a watch and chain? Winwood. Yes, sir. In his vest. Knowlton. Anything else? Winwood. In his pants pocket, some loose change. Two or three dollars in silver. Knowlton. What size bills were these? Winwood. I think about five dollars. All. All in bills. Knowlton. Whatever you took, you turned it over to Dr. Doolin, the medical examiner? Winwood. Yes, sir. Knowlton. Did you find anything valuable in, in her pockets? Winwood. I did not have anything to do with her pockets at all. Parentheses. Some things are brought in wrapped in a handkerchief. In parentheses, 
Mr. Jennings during the cross-examination for the defense. Jennings, were these keys all upon the ring? Parentheses, referring to two loose keys in the handkerchief. Winwood, I do not remember. I should think they were, but I would not be positive about it. Jennings, did you find either of the keys loose in his pocket? Winwood, I could not say. I did not put any of them on the ring. Jennings, so all the keys that are on the ring now, so all the keys are on the ring now, so far as you know. Were there, okay, were there when you took them from his pocket? Winwood, they were. Jennings, do you recall if you found any of the, these keys in his vest pocket? Winwood, I should think not. Jennings, you think they were in his pants pocket? Winwood, yes. Jennings, do you personally attend to preparing the bodies for burial? Winwood, I did. Undertaker James E. Winwood was called during the Superior Court trial almost a year later in June of 1893 and asked about only one topic, Andrew J. Borden's small gold, gold ring Lizzie had given him. Mr. Jennings, for the defense. Did you have charge of the funeral of Andrew J. Borden and his wife? Winwood, I did. Jennings, while you were preparing Mr. Borden's body for the grave, did you observe whether or not he had any ring upon his finger? Winwood, I cannot remember positively now. Jennings, did you see him have any ring upon his finger while you were having anything to do with him? Winwood, I cannot remember so long ago. Jennings, that is all, sir. Andrew, attorney Knowlton for the prosecution. Nothing. No cross-examination of the witness. This was this was the totality of Winwood's te of Winwood's testimony during the Superior Court trial, other than the, other than to state his name and occupation. Why call him about the ring? Jennings is Jennings is Lizzie's attorney. Was it to bolster Emma's testimony that the ring was the only article of jewelry Andrew ever wore? Parentheses underscoring he and Lizzie's closeness, and that he was buried with it. Or was there another reason to ask if it went with him to his grave? Emma Borden's testimony concerning the ring during the Superior Court trial. Mr. Jennings, for the defense. Did your father wear a ring, Miss Emma, upon his finger? Emma. Yes, sir. Jennings. Was or was that not the only article of jewelry which he wore? Emma, the only article. Jennings. Do you know from whom he received it? Emma. My sister Lizzie. Jennings. How long before his death? Emma. I can't tell accurately. I should think 10 or 15 years. Jennings. Do you know whether previously to his wearing it, she had worn it? Emma, yes, sir. Jennings, did he constantly wear it after it was given to him? Emma, always. Jennings, do you know whether or not it was upon his finger at the time he was buried? Emma, it was. Parentheses, was the ring on Andrew's finger when he, when he was finally buried at Oak Grove Cemetery a week after his murder? Did perhaps Alice Russell know something about it? And look at her testimony concerning what happened that night of the murders when she accompanied Lizzie to the cellar may provide a clue. We will look at this shortly. End of parentheses. James Winwood took charge of Andrew and Abby Borden's bodies at 5.30 in the afternoon, the day of the murders. Emma was probably upstairs with Lizzie, along with Mrs. Holmes and Alice Russell. Alice said she finally left the house at 6 to return home for supper and to pack a few things if she would stay the next four days with the sisters. The bodies were laid out on the dining room table and washed, as they were not embalmed. It is possible that Winwood wrapped the bodies with her, with herbs such as myrrh and sandalwood to offset the odor that would have been inevitable in the August heat. This was often done in that era, as bodies sometimes awaited burial for days, as relatives traveled great distances to attend services. Typically, there was a rush 
to have the burial performed within two days of the death. It was also a custom in the late 1800s to place the bodies within a cooling tent on nickel-plated boards. This helped keep the remains packed in ice frozen for a time. With the legs folded, these tents would have enveloped most of the dining room table. As the family was known to have breakfast in the kitchen the following morning, it can be assumed the odor was kept to a minimum, which would imply some kind of freezing. The shutters in the boarding dining room were now closed to curious onlookers outside. The bloody clothes had been removed and were eventually taken to the cellar washroom along with Abby's hair and switch, Abby's hair switch and shards of her bone. The section of carpet where she lay had also been cut up and placed along with the clothes on, on the brick floor of the room. They were later loaded into a wash tub and left in the southwest corner. Winward's final administration was to have had the sofa where Andrew died removed from the house and stored in a room in his office. Though covered with blankets, as it was carried out the front door of the boarding home, the crowd, the crowd was a twitter as the large bundle was loaded onto a cart and hauled away. The news was spreading rapidly throughout Fall River about the double murder at the boarding house. Inside Dr. R. Smith's drugstore, Dr. Dutra was, talk was talking it over with his friend there, Eli Benz, a 27-year-old clerk who had refused to sell prussic acid to Lizzie Borden the day before. The news was taken with surprise by those inside the store. Frederick Hart, the assistant clerk, called it a singular incidence that the Borden murder should follow so closely on the heels of Miss Lily Borden's request for poison. Eli Benz reported to Dr. Dutra Miss Borden's actions on Wednesday the day before. The doctor reported to Officer Doherty, who, within an hour, went to the drugstore that, that evening along with Officer Harrington. Benz told him of Lizzie's attempt to buy prussic acid. They asked him if he was sure it was Lizzie Borden, Andrew Borden's daughter. He said he had seen her many times on the street and that he believed he sold to her six years earlier when he worked at Riddle's drugstore. Between 8 and 9 that evening, the two officers took Mr. Benz to the Borden residence. They escorted him through the side screen door and asked him to wait inside the entry, not far from the doorway, leading in the kitchen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Officer Harrington asked for Lizzie, who appeared in the kitchen wearing a loose wrapper. With Eli Benz within earshot, Harrington asked Lizzie some innocuous questions about whether or not she had seen anyone around the house. She answered him three times, stating she had not seen anybody. Eli Benz stood within her view and listened to her answers. She took no notice of him. If she recognized him from the drugstore, she didn't show it. The peculiarity was in the way she spoke it. Eli Benz testified during the preliminary hearing. It was kind of a little tremulous. I'm sure it was the same woman I had seen down there. Parentheses, the New York Herald described Lizzie as a masculine-looking woman with a strong, resolute, unsympathetic face. She is robustly built, 33 years old, and of average height. Her voice has a peculiar guttural harshness. Emma Borden, was said to have, Emma Borden was said to have a coarseness to her voice. In parentheses. Mr. Bentz also testified that there was something about her eyes that he remembered as well. His testimony was excluded from the Superior Court trial. The findings were that the Bordens were killed by a hatchet, not poison. Although Knowlton battled hard to have the testimony allowed, showing it pointed to the intent to kill. It was ruled inadmissible, and the jury never heard it. Bridget leaves. As the shadows lengthened outside the Borden house, Bridget's nerves gave way. She had seen the slain body of Mrs. Borden in the guest room, the bloody sheet covering Mr. Borden as he lay on the sofa in the sitting room, 
and washed its hatchets and axes were brought it from the cellar, and jars of body parts placed on the kitchen table. She had been questioned, she had been questioned, her few personal possessions gone through, and had been given the dubious honor of tour guide for a myriad of police officers throughout the day. Bridget was invited to spend Thursday night across the street at the Salter Miller house. She could bunk with her maid, she could bunk with their maid in the attic. Although John had told her he would be spending the night in the attic next to her, or because of it, she chose to stay away from the house. There were two dead bodies in the dining room. She was confused about the things she had seen that day, and the murder had not been found. Police outside the doors be hanged. It was more than a young Irish maid could deal with. She packed up a few things and was escorted across the street. The door of the guest room was judiciously closed. The room sat in darkness. Abby's blood on the bed frame, dressing bureau, and wallpaper were the only remainders, reminders that she had been there that day. A large rectangular piece of missing carpet where she had lain was a testament to her final resting place within the house. John Morse would take the attic room near Bridget's. The heat in the upper story would not, let's see, hang on a second, the heat in the upper story would not be the only thing that would keep him awake that night. Lamp light in the darkness. The crowd on 2nd Street had diminished somewhat. Three police officers had been placed around the boarding house to keep watch and stop intruders from entering the yard. Those tenacious onlookers who stood alongside, on, along the sidewalk and tried to view the windows of the house from every angle were relegated to only the occasional view of a moving lamplight through the closed shutters. At 8.30 p.m., Alice Russell walked through the kitchen to the back screen door where Officer Hyde stood watch. She told him the family was now going to bed and if he needed anything, he could knock and she would come. She closed the wooden door and locked it. Somehow, it did not make her feel any safer. She felt as if she was looking, she, she was locking her own security outside, away from her. She passed the closed, she passed the closed door to the dining room and shivered. Without success, she tried to imagine it as if she had always known it, a nice room with flowered paper, a table draped in linen, and small touches of warmth and hominess. Her nervous mind instead served up images of two bodies lying in the darkness, shrouded in white sheets. Alice entered Lizzie's room from the front stairs landing, her lamplight playing across the closed door of the guest room. Inside, Emma was seated on Lizzie's bed, still wearing her street clothes. They were, their whispered conversation ceased as Alice's light preceded her into the, dining, into the room. Lizzie rose from where she had been seated on the lounge. Both sisters looked worn, their faces aged in the lamplight. Emma appeared to be somewhat in shock. Her eyes had a vacant stare to them. It was only her tightly gripped hands and pressed lips that betrayed the emotion she was trying to control. She had, she had only had a few hours to register that both her father and mother and Abby had been butchered and that they were still within the walls of the house. Lizzie watched her sister's face for some indication of what she was thinking. Alice went through the now open door in Lizzie's room that led into Abby and Andrew's bedroom. She would sleep there nearby in case Emma or Lizzie needed her. She looked at the bed where the slain couple had slept, and her nerve threatened to desert her. She could see their impressions in the pillows. The police had merely looked over and under the bed that day, leaving it basically the way Abby had made it that morning. Her simple toiletries lined the dressing case. Alice stepped to the open door of the room that housed the safe and a few furnishings. Abby's dresses hung from pegs along one wall, most of them practical in their makeup. Only one or two made a fancier fabric. A faint smell of lavender wafted from them. 
She turned to see Lizzie watching her through the open connecting door. Quickly, Lizzie turned away from her and pulled aside the red curtain hiding her toilet area in her bedroom. She picked up the slop pail and poured her dirty wash water from the basin into it. Emma went into her room and returned with her basin of water that she had used to freshen herself. She poured it into Lizzie's pail. As Alice added the water from the basin in her room, she said to Lizzie, I'll take that down. No, Lizzie said, I'll take it if you'll carry the lamp. If Alice assumed they would take the back stairs leading out of Andrew and Abby's bedrooms and kitchen <clears throat> below, she may have been surprised and chagrined to see Lizzie head off toward the front stairs. This would take them through the sitting room to the kitchen. Her father's blood was still on the walls, doors, and carpet. She could only follow Lizzie down the stairs, her heart pounding. The sitting room door was closed. Lizzie opened it and stepped through. Alice followed her into the room. Hurriedly, Alice walked through the dark room, her hands shaking. To her left was the closed door to the dining room where her friend's bodies were laid out. She and Lizzie reached the closed door of the kitchen, opened it, and stepped through. Officer Joseph Hyde, who was in charge of the north side of the house, keeping an eye on the backyard, saw something shimmer across the window glass of the kitchen on the east side. He stepped closer and watched as Lizzie Borden came through the open sitting room door into the kitchen with Alice Russell directly behind her carrying a kerosene lamp. The light lit their faces in an eerie halo as the two seemed to float through the darkened kitchen. They walked to the cellar door just inside the back pantry and started down the stairs. Once again, Alice must have been confused. There was a sink right there in the kitchen with running city water. Why go to the cellar? It was only dirty wash water that could be poured out in the sink. All she could do was hold the lamp and follow. Officer Hyde made the following report of the two women's movements as they descended into the dark cellar. I was standing at the east side of the house. Miss Lizzie and Miss Russell came out of the sitting room. Miss Russell was carrying a small hand lamp. Miss Lizzie had a toilet pail. They came through the kitchen into the entry and into the entryway, down the cellar stairs, into the cellar. Miss Russell, she stood at the foot of the stairs with the lamp. Miss Lizzie went along the north side of the cellar to the water closet and emptied the slop pail. She came back from the water closet into the wash cellar to the sink, and I heard something that sounded like water when she got there. She returned from there to where Miss Russell stood, and they came upstairs, went back to the sitting room, through the kitchen, into the sitting room. It was 15 minutes to nine. A few minutes after, perhaps 10 or 15 minutes, Miss Lizzie came out of the same door of the sitting room door into the kitchen in the same way down in the cellar. She came into the wash cellar and she puts her lamp on to a table on the west end of the cellar. She comes over to the east end of the house where the sink is and stooped down opposite to the sink. What she did, I don't know. She was all alone. It didn't take her above two minutes before she went upstairs again. Mr. Moody for the prosecution during the Superior Court trial. At that time, was there anything else in that wash cellar? Hyde. Yes, sir. There was the clothes that had come off Mr. Borden and Mrs. Borden. Mr. Robinson for the defense. Now, were there any other officers in the yard that evening? Hyde. Yes, sir. Mr. Ferguson and Officer Minahan. I was on the east side of the house by the cellar door. One was on the north side. One was on the north side, and one was on the south side, southwest corner. John Minahan was on the west end, the street end. Mr. Ferguson was standing around on the steps on the north side of the steps, the front door. Neither of them were with me. I could see into the cellar through the window, the east window. 
I could see through the window on the southeast on the southeast end of the corner. When Miss Lizzie came across from the water closet to the sink, Miss Russell was nervous then. She was hanging back over there by the stairs with a lamp as though she would not go. She stood about three or four feet from the bottom of the stairs. She acted like she didn't want to go in the wash cellar. She seemed to be frightened, kind of shaking. She didn't say anything. Robinson, where were those clothes you spoke of? Hide. They were on the south side of the wash cellar. Robinson, how far were they from the sink? Hide. Quite a ways. I should think five or six feet. Robinson, which corner did the sink stand in? Hide. The sink stands in the southeast corner. Robinson, did you know where there was a door? Did you know there was that there was a door under it? The sink. Or not? Hide. I believe there is a door to the sink. Robinson, the door that opens and swings around? Hide. Yes, sir. Robinson, you didn't see her do anything except you say you say she stooped down. Hide. Yes, sir. Robinson, has you seen that pail there with the clothes in it? Hide. Yes, sir. Robinson, and that pail was pretty near the sink, wasn't it? Hide. Yes, sir. Robinson, and then she took the light and went upstairs. Hide. Yes, sir. Mr. Moody, for the prosecution, then asked Officer Hyde, but where you stood, you could see in the sitting room? Hyde, I was looking through the kitchen window on the, on the east end. Moody, then you could only see when the door was opened. Hyde, I could see only when the door was opened. When Alice was questioned about the two cellar visits that Thursday night, she said she was not aware Lizzie had gone down a second time without her. As Mr. Moody for the prosecution is questioning her during the Superior Court trial, something very odd occurs. Alice surprises him by becoming vague as to what happened after she and Lizzie came up from the cellar on the trip down with the slop pail. Mr. Moody, did you go to the cellar again that night? Alice, no, sir. Moody, either alone or with her? Alice, no, sir. Moody, did you know whether anybody else went down the cellar, went down cellar later that night? Alice, no, sir. Moody, when you went upstairs, where did you go? Alice, I don't know. I think right upstairs. I think the second story, but I don't know. Moody, right upstairs. What do you mean by upstairs? On the dining room floor? Alice, no, the second floor. Still, I don't know. Moody, did anyone go with you? Alice, I don't know that. Parentheses, Emma testified she was hanging up her dress in the clothes press and dying that night. It appears she was getting ready for bed as Alice and Lizzie made their nocturnal trip. Moody, what room did you sleep in that night? Alice, what was Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room? Moody, do you remember when you parted after coming up from the cellar with Miss Lizzie Borden? Alice, no, sir. Moody, did you see her again that night? Alice, yes, sir. How soon after? Alice, I don't know. Moody, do you know where she had been in the meantime? Alice, I think she had been in her room. Our doors were opened. Moody, were the doors open all the time? Alice, yes, sir, all the time, up to that time. Moody, up to that time. Alice, up to that time. Moody, well then, after what time, after that time, were the doors open? No, they were not. They were closed a short time. Moody, after the doors were closed, did you see her again until morning? Alice, yes, sir. Moody, what time? Alice, after I opened the door. Moody, how long was that after you closed the door? Alice, I don't know for sure. I think 15 or 20 minutes. Moody, how long after you came upstairs was it before you closed the door between the two rooms? Alice, I don't know. 
Moody, can you give me any idea? Alice, I cannot. I don't know whether we went right upstairs or not. Moody, you don't remember whether you did or not? Alice, no, I did not. I cannot tell anything about it. Moody, in any event, the doors were closed at the time you say? Alice, yes, sir. I was getting ready for bed. I read an account of this affair in the news. Moody, anything else? Alice, I don't think I did anything else. Moody, any toilet operation of any sort? Alice, bathing. Moody, how long did you remain at the boarding house after the day of the murder? Um, homicide. Alice, I went there when I was called, and I came away the next Monday morning. I occupied what was Mr. and Mrs. Borden's room Thursday and Friday nights. Saturday and Sunday nights, I occupied Miss Emma's room. Moody, Miss Emma's room? Alice, Miss Emma's room. Parentheses. It's obvious Alice is a reluctant witness. The number of I don't know answers is remarkable. End parentheses. Okay, hang on, let me get the right page. The three policemen kept watch during the night. Officers Hyde and Minahan and Mr. Ferguson. Alice Russell testified she could hear them whispering beneath her window as she lay in the darkness of Andrew and Abby's room. She did not sleep all night. Lizzie lay awake in her room as well. Her windows opened to the sounds of the night. The din of people talking had finally faded as the throng of strangers headed home to their dull lives, anxious to read what the local papers had served up in the way of details. Occasionally, there came the whisperings of the policemen beneath her window as they discussed the case and compared notes. She could not make out their words, only a, buzz, only, only a buzzing like flies. Her mind kept going down the stairs and into the dining room where the two shrouded bodies lay. She was told the funeral would be Saturday. Her father would be with her only one more day. She heard Emma move on her bed in, in the room next to hers. Emma was here. Emma would fix everything. Emma Borden, alone in the darkness of her small room, turned her back to the bedroom door and sobbed quietly. It had all happened so quickly. Her prayers that it was a bad dream had gone unanswered, and she saw the blood sprayed across the sitting room wall. That room seemed so hollow and changed. It wasn't just the blood on the doors, but the sofa was gone. A section of carpet near the wall where the sofa had been was cut away. Up in the sweltering attic, John Morse lay with his arm flung across his forehead, the sound of cicadas thrum, thrum the night sky. His mind would not settle. All the planning, gone. All the lives the ruined Swansea deal would impact. The money he would lose on the house and cattle deals that had been put in place. But worse, so much worse, Andrew and Abby were dead, murdered, and the newspapers were suspecting him. His heart raced as he watched the shadows from the pear trees play across the ceiling in the moonlight. Across the street, Bridget lay in a fetal position, her back to Minnie Green, the maid with whom she was sharing a small bed. She couldn't sleep. So much had happened that day. Only now, in the silence of a strange room with moonlight filtering in through the unfamiliar designs of the lace curtain across from her, did she begin to have nigglings of fear. Something was wrong with Lizzie's story. The things she told people, they just weren't true. Chapter 23, Friday, August 5th, 1892. The morning sunlight filtering through the factory smoke of Fall River, Massachusetts, that Friday morning, shone down on the city that would forever be changed. Its name inextricably linked to the Borden murders. As storm clouds moved in, so did the crowds arriving early at 92 Second Street to secure prime viewing of the day's events. Many clutched the morning papers in their hands, 
feverishly reading over the latest developments, glancing up only if someone entered or left the boarding home. From the Boston Daily Globe, Fall River, Massachusetts, August 5th. Let me look at this. <laughs> okay. Um, in the closely shuttered dining room of the Borden residence on 2nd Street are the bodies of the victims of yesterday's tragedy, which will tomorrow, with brief burial service, be consigned to the grave. At the front door is a police officer whose instructions are to pass no one into the house unless in authority, without the consent of the family. A second officer stands in a sheltered nook at the rear of the premises. Still, a third sentinel is at the outer gate. His duty is to help the sidewalk clear and open for travel. Help keep the sidewalk clear and open for travel. A crowd of men, women, and children are braving a severe shower this forenoon for the privilege of lingering on the street and watching the scene of the tragedy. Among them are officers in citizens' clothing who are instructed to shadow and follow closely any member of the household who may go out. Very little of, very little of importance has transpired around the house this morning. The family was astir at 6.30 o'clock, and about an hour later breakfast was served. There were the Mrs. There were the Mrs. Borden, Mr. Morris, and a lady friend of the daughter's present. And from the statements of the servant girl, Bridget Sullivan, they ate but little and talked less. Miss Emma Borden, who was absent from home at the time of the tragedy, returned late yesterday afternoon. She appears very calm and self-possessed and was seen this morning and interviewed by officers in the case. Miss Lizzie has not yet decided to speak for publication and has denied all press visitors an, inter an interview. The city marshal will call on her today and take her statement, together with that of the servant. The details of the funeral have not been arranged as yet, but will be before the day ends. It is becoming well settled that there was not perfect harmony in the Borden household. It is said Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and that for a considerable time back they have not spoken. When seen this morning, however, Mr. Morris denied the story, saying Lizzie and Mrs. Borden were always friendly. Mr. Morris made his first appearance about 8 o'clock. He had a basket in his hands and was, and was evidently on his way to a store. He walked down 2nd Street with a policeman at his heels and soon after returned and went indoors. He came out later on another errand and again was trailed by the, by the sleuth hound and the law. Then he stayed indoors until noon. The writer has the assurance of the chief of police that no move will be made by his department until after the funeral tomorrow. Then the procedure will depend upon a combination of circumstances that are now being investigated. F.L. Ed, F. L. Edson, with the Fall River Police, left the station house on Friday morning, August 5th at 5.55 a.m., arriving at the Borden residence at 6 a.m. According to Mr. Edson's police report, he did the following. I entered the house by the side door on the north side of the house. Officer Harrington was on duty at the door. The door from the entry to the kitchen was open. J.V. Morris was in front of the stove, and we did not speak. I went down cellar. I went down cellar from the entry, went into the washroom, and the southmost corner of the cellar. On the floor were two axes and a single hatchet. On a bench or table were a number of wet towels. There was blood on the towels. I went upstairs with the axes and hatchet, met Harrington at the door. Harrington said there was one more hatchet in the cellar. I went down cellar again, Harrington with me. In the, in the vegetable cellar off the washroom, Harrington handed me a hatchet from a shelf or scaffold. We then went upstairs and out of the house. On the steps, I saw John V. Morris coming from the backyard. I said, good morning. He answered. 
I went from there directly to the police station, arriving there about 6.23 a.m. At the police station, I examined the axes. They were common ones, had been used rough, the single hatchet the same. The large hatchet was in good condition and very sharp. On the back of the blade near the handle was a spot of rust or blood. From this spot to the handle was a light-colored hair. There were dark spots on the handle. Do not know whether they were dirt or blood. The blade appeared to have been in water. The extreme length of this hatchet was about 17 inches. The blade about 5 inches broad. The head and claw on the end about 1 inch wide and about 2.5 inches long. Officers Harrington, Dougherty, Minahan, Reagan, and McCarty saw me when I left the premises, and Officer Mahoney and Stuart Cummings when I arrived at the police station. I carried the axes and hatchet openly in my hand. The reason for Officer Edison's detailed report and venomous report of how the axes and hatches were conducted to the station house is that John Morris claimed to see Mr. Edison stuffing the four tools into a brown burlap bag at the steps of the rear door as he came around the corner of the house from the backyard. Edson denies he did anything but carrying them open-handed to the station, a sight that must have given the rain-drenched crowd their money's worth. John Morris's insistence that he saw Edson, place, Edson placing them in a bag may have been to insinuate that any hairs or spots found on the tightly packed weapons could have been caused by transference of hairs already in the bag. Spots of rust could have rubbed off onto each as they were herded in a sack down the street. The argument was never rectified. It was hard to believe that John would need to lie about something as innocuous as a bag, especially since the hair was proven to be bovine, not human at all. It is more likely the police were covering their hides in, in a case already riddled with mishandling of evidence. At 7.15 that morning, Officer Edson was back. I went into the house with Officer Doherty, Bridget Sullivan, and John Moore, and John Morris were in the kitchen. I also inquired of Morris about his relatives in New Bedford in the city. I also inquired about Mrs. Borden's relatives. Morris called Miss Emma and she answered the questions. While I was talking to Miss Emma, Miss Lizzie came in. She said, Bridget, are you sure the back cellar door was fastened? Bridget said, yes, ma'am. It is apparent from the testimonies that Bridget had returned to the Borden house that morning between 6.30 and 7.15. As no one had gone to get her, it was probably arranged the night before that she would come back to the house in the morning and prepare breakfast for the family. She is spotted in the kitchen with John Morris at 7.15, and Lizzie and Emma arrived in the kitchen about the same time. The newspaper reported the small group sat down to eat around 7.30 that morning. The atmosphere in the kitchen on that Friday morning must have been thick. Outside stands, stands a bevy of policemen. Rain is pouring down, perhaps dampening the excitement of the crowd and bringing some, some semblance of peace. Plans may have been discussed for the funeral the next day, as flowers and caskets would have to be ordered. Undertaker Windward would handle the funeral procession in buggies, along with preparation of the bodies and graves. It would be a small service, with only a few close family members and friends. If Lizzie hoped the removal of the hatchets would be the last of the police presence in their home, she was to have had a reawakening. As the subdued force who ate their breakfast, Marshal Hilliard and Detective Seaver of Taunton were already in a closed room discussing their next move. Sometime that morning, perhaps during breakfast, a plan was hatched between Emma, Lizzie, and possibly John Morris to place an ad for a $5,000 reward to run in the Friday evening papers. $5,000 reward. The above reward will be paid to anyone who may secure the arrest and conviction 
of the person or persons who occasioned the death of Andrew J. Borden and his wife, Emma, Emma L. Borden, of his wife. Sign it with a signature of Emma L. Borden and Lizzie A. Borden. This reward may have been at the encouragement of Andrew Jennings, the family attorney who Emma admitted she contacted in the early days of the murder investigation. Mr. Jennings had handled all of Andrew Borden's affairs and was a trusted friend of the family's. It was a shrewd move. It showed the public a unified front by the family to find the murderer and offer what was, in that day, a huge amount of money. If a member of the family was was a guilty party, then they were out nothing, as no information would be forthcoming. As the papers were already pointing to the finger at John and Lizzie, Morris may have been all in with his decision to divert attention away from the family. The reward was never claimed. John Morse does damage control. At 8.30 that morning, Officer Harrington stated that John Morse left the house and pushed his way through the throng of people as he crossed 2nd Street to rap on the door of Southern Miller's house. He called Bridget, who stayed there that night. Since Bridget was already at the Bordens during the breakfast hour, it was assumed she went back across to the Millers afterward. Bridget did spend Friday night back at Borden House. Had John convinced her to come back, telling her he would be right there in the attic to protect her? It appears he and Bridget were seen together on several occasions. Was he recruiting her as an ally, or simply finding out all she knew about the movements and motives of the day? After leaving the Miller house, John made his way down to the post office. An officer hot on his heels. An officer hot on his heels. He entered the post office, stayed a moment, then came out and walked across the street to Georgie House, where he purchased a two-cent stamp. John then returned to the post office at 8.32 a.m., dropped a letter addressed to W.M.A. Davis of South Dartmouth. It bore the words, in haste. On his way home, he tried the daily news door, but it was not open. Meanwhile, Detective George F. Siever of the Massachusetts District Police had arrived at the Borden's house between 8 and 9 a.m., and in searching the barn and down cellar, according to Mr. Siever and Marshall Hilliard, that was the only search of the Borden home or premises made that day. Marshall Hilliard and Detective Seaver arrived that afternoon and questioned Lizzie and Bridget. No record states what was gleaned from those two interviews. As a result of the conversation with Lizzie, however, Officer Medley was dispatched to New Bedford to follow up on Lizzie's reported visit there. Lizzie's visit to New Bedford. This is Mr. Medley's report. In accordance with the instructions, I visited New Bedford. I find that Miss Lizzie Borden arrived in that city on Thursday, July 21st, and went to Mrs. Poole's, the mother of a friend, a former schoolmate, living near South Water Street. While there, she never went out alone, always going in the company of, fa- of the family, with one exception, that being Saturday morning, July 23rd, when she went on the street to buy a piece of dress goods of some cheap material, being gone about one hour and 30 minutes. She went alone and returned alone. No one called to see her while she was there. She never made a mention of her family affairs. On Tuesday, Lizzie, Mrs. Poole, and Mrs. Poole's daughter went to ride to Westport to see Mrs. Poole's daughter, who was a schoolmate of Lizzie's and is now married to Cyrus W. Tripp. They spent the day there, leaving time enough for Lizzie to connect with the train at New Bedford to fall, for Fall River. That was the last time the Poole saw her. While at Westport, Lizzie saw no one outside the family, burying the bloody clothes. Sometime during Marshall Hillard's interviews with Bridget and Lizzie, 
John Moore stepped forward to complain about, about the bloody clothing and artifacts of the murder lying in the cellar. He asked them to be removed out of decency for the family. Subsequently, Officer Albert E. Chase was sent in the afternoon to the house. Mr. Chase made the following report. The following articles in wearing apparel were this afternoon taken from a wash tub in the cellar, washroom of the Borden house, by orders of the city marshal and medical examiner, and were buried under my direction in the yard back of the barn. One soft pillow and tidy, one large piece of Brussels carpet, one roll of cotton batting, one sheet and several pieces of cotton cloth, three towels, one napkin, one chemise, one dress, one pair of drawers, one skirt, two aprons, one hair braid, and several pieces of hair from Mrs. Borden's head from five to eight inches long, one necktie, one truss, one piece of black silk braid, or watch guard. I also found mixed in with the hair of Mrs. Borden a piece of bone, which from its nature I took to be a piece of Mrs. Borden's skull. It was cut so smooth that I thought it might be of use in determining what kind of instrument was used as the bone and hair both had the appearance of being cut with a very sharp instrument. I gave this piece of bone to Dr. Dolan. About the middle of the next week, during the inquest, Dr. Dolan ordered all the articles dug up. After taking out pieces of clothing, taking out pieces of clothing and a carpet, they were ordered buried again. This time, they were put in a box. Parentheses. During the original burying of the clothes, John Morse, whose nerves had reached their breaking point, had an altercation with David P. Keefe, who hired a man to bury the clothes and artifacts for $5. John Morse pronounced the amount robbery. Keefe said he wouldn't do the job for $100, but under the circumstances, said he might be persuaded to do it for free. Morse finally paid him $3. Relatives and Insights By now, the pressure in the Borden household was at a boiling point. Lizzie spent the day sequestered in her room, leaving Emma to deal with the visitors one of whom was reportedly Mr. George Fish, Abby Borden's brother-in-law from Hartford, Connecticut. Hiram Harrington, the husband of Andrew Borden's sister, Lorana, claimed to have had a long talk with Lizzie on Thursday, the day of the murders. His statements to officers Harrington and Doherty concerned Lizzie, concerning Lizzie were less than kind. I am not at all satisfied with her statement or demeanor. She was too solicitous about discomfort and showed a side of character I never knew or suspected her to possess. She helped him off with one coat and on with another and assisted him in an easy incline on the sofa and desired to place the napkin over him and also to adjust the shutter so the light would not disturb his slumber. This is something she could not do even if she felt, and no one knows her. Could be made to believe it. She is very strong-willed and will fight for what she considers her rights. She went to the barn where she stayed 20 minutes or half an hour looking for lead from which to make sinkers for fishing lines as she was going to Marion next week. She said she was cutting the lead into sizable sinkers. He did admit that Lizzie was an enthusiastic angler. Here for the first time we hear the sinker's alibi, one that was never mentioned during the police interviews that day. Officer Doherty said Mr. Harrington told about the Ferry Street estate being given to the girls and afterward being returned. Harrington also mentioned Mrs. Borden giving each girl 10 shares in the Crystal Spring Bleachery Company, which he paid, I'm sorry, Mr. Borden giving each girl 10 shares in the Crystal Spring Bleachery Company, which he paid $100 a share for. They sold them very soon after for less than $40 a share. He also gave them bank stock at various times, 
allowing them, of course, the entire income from them. In addition, he gave them a weekly stipend amounting to $200 a year. In spite of all this, Mr. Harrington continued, the dispute about their not being allowed enough went on with equal bitterness. Lizzie did most de demonstrated contention, as Emma is very quiet and unassuming, and would feel very deeply any disparaging or angry words from her father. Lizzie, on the contrary, was haughty and domineering with the stubborn will of her father, and bound to contest for her rights. There were many animated interviews between her father and between father and daughter on this point. Lizzie is a, is of a repellent disposition, and after an unsuccessful passage with her father, would become sulky and refuse to speak to him for days at a time. Lizzie moved in the best society in Fall River, was a member of the Congregational Church, and is a brilliant conversationalist. She thought she ought to enter as others did, and felt that with her father's wealth she was expected to hold her end up with the others of her set. Her father's constant refusal to allow her to entertain lavishly angered her. I have heard many bitter things she has said of her father, and know she was deeply resentful of her father's maintained stand in this matter. During Harrison's inquest testimony, he mentioned his views of Lizzie and of his severing ties with Andrew Borden. Mr. Harrington, referring to Andrew, we never had no words or anything of that kind. Some years I thought he was hard, referring to Andrew, and I cut his acquaintance. That is, he came to my house and I would leave the room, and he very soon saw I cut his acquaintance, and he did mine. Knowlton, referring to Lizzie's attitude toward Abby, did Lizzie speak to you about more than once? The dispute over the parentheses, the dispute over the fairy house being put in. Abby's name, Harrington. Sometimes it has been mentioned in a joking way about the difficulties. I don't know as I could put enough together to say what really passed. Knowlton, how long ago was the last time she said anything about it? Harrington, I think last winter sometime. I have not seen her at the house for, I might say, summer, and I have, and I have inquired of my wife how it was that Lizzie had not been down. Emma has always come. And the reply I would give from her was that Lizzie was into everything that, it, that is, works in the church, and her time was occupied. That is all I would give from her. Knowlton, when she spoke about it last winter, what did she say about it? Harrington, I don't know as I could tell, as I could tell, as I could tell any more than to speak kind of, kind of sneeringly of Mrs. Borden. She always called her Mrs. Borden and Mrs. or Mrs. B. It was unfriendly. Abby never mentioned it to my wife. Knowlton. It was understood that there was trouble in the family? Harrington, oh yes, there has been, I guess, for several years, I guess, of, this, of, of his early marriage with her. Everything was very, very pleasant and uncommonly sold for a stepmother. Knowlton, this trouble is of recent years? Harrington, quite, a number of years, I should think. Hiram Harrington was not the only uncle to throw disparaging remarks Lizzie's way. Uncle John Vinicum Morris, Uncle John Vinicum Morris told me, Told the reporter, Lizzie is a peculiar girl, given to fits of sullenness. After Marshall Hilliard's interviews, it became clear to the people residing inside, became clear to the people residing inside 92nd Street, the police were not focusing on their attention very far from the Borden's home. The newspapers were reporting in minute detail every move being made by the police and the in inmates of the house. Lizzie was coming undone. Although Alice, John, Bridget, and Emma were all keeping the papers and the news away from her, Lizzie knew things were not going as planned. Her panic grew with each passing hour. They keep coming back, questioning, 
where I was, who I saw in the day leading up to the murders, all of my movements yesterday morning. The freight train roared again inside her head. The room spun, and she finally snapped. Dr. Bowen was hastily sent for. Dr. Bowen arrived in Lizzie's room to find a woman whose nerves had completely unraveled. Knowing the bromo caffeine was no longer strong enough, he left her with a dose of sulfate of morphine, one-eighth of a gram. It was a low dosage, dissolved in water. It would calm her and perhaps steady her nerves for the ordeal of the funeral the next morning. John Morris was dealing with his heightened fear in another way. Sick of the invasiveness of the public, he acted out by locking two Boston reporters into the board's barn, who were helping themselves to some private snooping. Only after the men pounded on the locked door and threatened lawsuits did Morris let them out. They reminded him a $5,000 reward had been offered, and people were intensely interested in snooping out clues. He paced and made every effort to relay news back and forth to his friends in South Dartmouth, Fairhaven, New Bedford, and Westport. The going was rough, as his every movement was shadowed by a policeman. By evening, the people in the street outside the boarding home had grown restless. The papers were rife with suspicious con- suspicions concerning Lizzie and John Morris. Yet nothing seemed to be happening. The weight, the humidity, the rain, and the constant jousting for a good position had taken its toll on the crowd, numbering close to 600 people. Okay, well, that's it. It's seven, yeah. So we're done for this week. Uh, we'll continue next week. And uh, we'll see where this takes us. So I want to thank you guys for coming tonight. I shut this thing down. And I really appreciate it. If you like this Sunday get-together... <clears throat> excuse me. Thank you. All right, share it with five people. If you hated this Sunday get-together, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here. Uh, please, if you're watching from Facebook, please, please, please follow... If you're watching from Twitch, please, please, please follow. If you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe. There's that little ghost in the bottom right-hand corner. Put the uh, Sherlock Holmes hat on in the magnifying glass. That's our mascot. Hit that button. We've got more than 250 videos over there on different topics. We don't always do murder. We don't always do ghostlies. We do other stuff as well. And I'm sure there's something there for everybody. I'd appreciate you subscribing. And uh, you see that ticker running along the bottom? That's because... California Haunts is a nonprofit. Um, everything comes, what that means is that everything comes out of my pocket. So when we're out in the field, we take donations from people, you know, to keep things going, buy equipment and stuff like that, just like the computers, the mics, everything you see here, that all comes out of my pocket. And also the internet bills to run, to run this show and all that other stuff. So if you could help me out a little bit, that would be great. I really appreciate it. You can do that at paypal.me at California Haunts, or if you, uh, Prefer Venmo? Do just go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. I'd really appreciate the help. Bills are coming due, and I got to get this thing paid up. Anyway, I want to thank you all. I will see you tomorrow at 6:30 p.m. the usual time with Cynthia Sue Larson, who's going to be talking about quantum jumps. So I will see you tomorrow, and I want to thank you all for coming, and have a nice night. See ya. <laughs>